Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. We are happy to have author TJ Stiles with us tonight. TJ is a full-time writer. His book, The First Tycoon, which I believe was his second biography that you had written, correct, won the 2010 Pulitzer Prize for Biography, as well as the National Book Award for Nonfiction that year. Um, Both of those are a pretty great feat. Tonight, he's here to read Custer's Trials, A Life on the Frontier of New America. So without further ado, please join me in giving a warm welcome to TJ Stiles. Thank you very much. Um, It's really a treat to be here. Uh, The Tattered Cover is nationally a legendary store. So uh, if you live in Denver or nearby, pardon me, you know, you really really have a a national treasure here to come to. Um, And what I'd like to do is to explain my take on Custer, sort of justify why I'm writing a book about him by taking one very famous or perhaps infamous moment in his life, and that is his court-martial. Not his first, but actually his second court-martial. He appeared before this court-martial at Fort Leavenworth on September 16, 1867. He uh, had just completed his first year on the Great Plains after having served as a, a soldier in the Civil War, having risen to the rank of Major General of U.S. Volunteers. Just as a a fact, that's something that's very confusing. Uh, The Army actually, in the 19th century, erected a temporary, what's essentially a temporary army, to fight the Civil War, the U.S. Volunteers. And so regular Army officers in the permanent standing army would take new ranks in this temporary wartime army, And then after that army was disbanded, they reverted to their permanent ranks. So Custer became a general, and he was still addressed as general because he was breveted a major general in the regular army as well. Uh, A brevet was an honorary rank. It was a system of rewarding valor and high performance before the army really instituted a system of medals. So it gets very confusing. You could actually have come out of the Civil War with four ranks. You could be a, a, your rank in the U.S. Volunteers, you'd have a brevet rank in the U.S. Volunteers, a service rank in the regular Army, a brevet rank in the regular Army. It gets incredibly confusing. So Custer was actually promoted to lieutenant colonel in the standing regular Army in 1866 and became the second-in-command, the effective field commander of the, a new regiment, the 7th U.S. Cavalry, and embarked on his first campaign on the Great Plains against the uh, native peoples of the Great Plains in 1867 and made a disaster of it. At the end of it, he was tried and, and put on trial in Fort Leavenworth, and eventually he was convicted. Now, this was an incredible fall. Custer at the time was 27 years old, and in just four years had passed since he became, at the age of 23, a brigadier general in the U.S. Volunteers, 
having been named to that post from the staff of the commander of the cavalry of the Army of the Potomac, the uh, sort of premier Union army in the Civil War. And he not only was promoted at this astonishingly young age, but he performed exceptionally well within days of his promotion at the Battle of Gettysburg. He went on to fight in a number of major battles, and he uh, helped to win many of those battles as well. He was highly regarded within the army by his commanders. His men loved him, and he was a national celebrity. It's hard to think of any other division commanders, sort of a mid-level for generals, in the Civil War who ended as household names, and Custer did. And as I argue in my book, in military terms at least, he earned that distinction. And so just two years after the end of the Civil War, Custer finds himself disgraced on trial in Fort Leavenworth, having been humiliated in his first year on the Great Plains. And the question is, how did this happen? What does it mean? Now, there have been a lot of answers that have occurred over the years, um, some of which are proposed by his wife, who's a major figure in my biography, Libby Custer. And many of these um, explanations tend to reduce it to a very simple formula. Basically, what happened is there were a number of things that Custer was tried for, but what really pushed the army over the edge uh, to lead him to be arrested was that in the middle of hostilities with uh, um, particularly the Southern Cheyennes and the Oglala Lakota um, uh, warriors, he abandoned his men. He took an escort and rode hundreds of miles, uh, abandoning his post to see his wife. So Libby's explanation was, we missed each other so much and we were so in love that he had to come see me. And so it was an act of love, according to one version. There are other versions as well. Custer was frustrated by this warfare. Um, As his record for that year shows, he performed very poorly. He couldn't adapt, at least initially, from the change from the conventional warfare of the Civil War. That also was kind of a neat potted answer, and I don't think it, it does very well either. The answer actually opens up a light into Custer as a person and also to what his life meant because it intersects with all kinds of other areas of American history and other areas of his life that, while hardly unknown, have really been at the periphery or left out entirely by many other biographies. Now, there's a lot of very good writing about Custer. I'm not out to debunk everyone, to show how everyone's wrong. As I say, I'm changing the camera angle. I'm trying to look at Custer as a figure on a frontier in time, as America became the modern United States that we know. And this occurred not simply by destroying slavery in the Civil War, by the rise of the railroad and large corporation. It occurs in um, uh, America's sort of sense of itself, the older romantic America kind of fades, a more organizational society arises. Um, This is an America in which uh, not only are large corporations dominating the economy, but people expect to work for someone else, as opposed to an earlier America where working for wages was a temporary state before you opened your own shop or uh, started your own farm. Um, This is an America in which there's a new national literary culture. There are now national magazines, national newspapers that everyone is reading. And there's a change in America's intellectual temperament, intellectual culture. 
In countless ways, America is becoming the modern United States, and Custer was engaged with all of these different changes in many ways, and yet I argue that he was never able to adapt to this new America. So the natural question with Custer often is, are you for him or against him? Because he's such a divisive figure. And he's a divisive figure because he represents to people some of the, the most explosive issues in American history, some of the most destructive policies this country has ever had, some of the greatest loss of life and greatest changes that have occurred. So people are passionate about him as a hero, especially in the Civil War. People are passionate about him as a, a man who killed Native Americans and, and um, helped to destroy American Indian independence and culture. People put upon him all of these great issues. And certainly he bears some of that weight, though, though not all of it. Um, but what I would like to do is get at him as a human being so that we understand what it was like to go through that period, so we understand how a person could become so controversial in his own lifetime, not just for us today, but in his lifetime, he was a lightning rod for all of these huge changes taking place in America and all of these very divisive issues. So how did Custer get to that point in 1867? really the low point of his career until that other low point in which he ends up dead. Um, how does that happen? How does he get there? Well, again, there's this passage of two years that takes place um, that brings him there uh, in many ways uh, through a building crisis in many areas of his life. Now, one area of his life in which he's creating trouble is personally, particularly with his marriage. And this is the proximate cause for why he self-destructs so dramatically. And Custer's ability to self-destruct, even though in the Civil War he'd proven his ability, his exceptional ability at times as a combat officer, his ability to publicly self-destruct is one of the reasons why he's so fascinating and why he makes such a good story. Even if you hate him, um, I like to point out, you know, Walter White in Breaking Bad is not a good guy. But he's a really compelling figure because he keeps creating these disasters for himself and getting out of them. And that's Custer, even if you can't stand him. Um, And what happened is one of the areas in which he consistently creates crises is in his marriage. Now, Libby Custer was a young woman who was, she was quite beautiful. She was charming. Men found her immensely attractive and she knew it and she loved that fact. Custer was someone who was always, as his West Point roommate called him, a ladies man. Now, you know, this is, uh, you know, on one hand, it's perfectly natural in both their parts. Um, In Custer's case, though, I think there's a certain thread of his personality that you see in his relationship with his wife, Libby, that runs through his flamboyance as an army officer as well, and that's insecurity. This is a man who was born to very poor, obscure parents. Um, His father was a volatile Um, deeply religious man who was constantly putting pressure on Custer um, to reform and uh, to give himself over to Christ. And Custer resisted that. I think he felt um, resented that moral pressure. He's somebody who always wanted to be great, which meant he wanted to appeal to people who are great. So he goes to West Point. He goes onto the staff of, um, you know, high-level generals. He's constantly trying to appeal to these people who are, you know, the greatest of the great in American society. He's trying to leave behind those poor, obscure background that he came from. And so when he's challenged, he flares up. 
he goes from being the, the confident combat commander to being someone who's brittle, who wants to shout down the people who are questioning him, who are challenging him. He gets verbose. His, his language gets strained and highfalutin and, and overly complicated as he tries to argue his way out. You can tell that he's brittle. This is the, the underside of Custer's flamboyance. This is the underside of his constant attempt to attract women. You know, for someone who feels deeply insecure about himself at a certain level, having the opposite sex being interested in you is a kind of temporary antidote to that. And so Custer, in this dual attempt to appeal to the loftiest in society, and also in his love of being the center of female attention, in 1866, he spends months away from his wife in New York. And he spends a total of about two years of his life in New York City, something that people don't realize. He loves the cosmopolitan center. And so he's known for being not far from where we are today. He visited Denver, in fact, himself. But actually, for him, the other pole of his life, the place where he was building a reputation here to bring back there was to New York. That was the center of democratic politics, and he was a, a partisan Democrat. He was, um, it was the center of uh, America's literary and publishing culture, and he's a man who later invented, reinvented himself as a public writer as well. And also, it was where the wealthiest people in the country were. And Custer wrote about wanting to be wealthy, wanting to be powerful. I want wealth not for its own sake, he said, but for the power that it brings. And he's mingling with these, these kingmakers in politics, with stockbrokers, and he loves it. The problem is, is that he didn't have the money. He had a couple of means of, of trying to get money. He uh, actually had acquired a horse during the, the aftermath of the Civil War, uh, one of the most famous racehorses in America. Uh, it was worth an estimated $10,000. He sent his men out specifically to search for it, and then he uh, put together a board of army officers and had the army sell it to him for $125. <clears throat> the War Department ordered him to return it. He sort of hid the horse until... Uh, he, his patron in the army, General Sheridan, got the War Department to back off. Custer thought $10,000. The world is his oyster. He has all kinds of options with the end of the Civil War. And then after taking first prize in the Michigan State Fair with a horse, uh, it drops dead of a stroke. Um, he wanted to go to Mexico to fight for the Mexican revolutionaries who were battling against the French who had invaded Mexico and imposed a, uh, an emperor. And they promised him $10,000 if he'd do it. But the French, they were beginning to lose the war. They were going to pull out. And Secretary of State Seward said, no, Custer can't go. So that route to making a fortune drops out. So here's Custer. It's a year after the Civil War. His options are limited. And New York, is, he feels the allure. But there's also something else in New York. It's the attention of women. And he's a national celebrity, you know, this boy general, they called him, um, this self-consciously dashing, flamboyant young man who was out helping to win the Civil War, a cavalry officer, probably the last U.S. general to ever kill someone in a sword fight, which helps explain why he was popular. The Civil War was astonishingly deadly. Every, every household lost someone. 750,000 people died in the Civil War. And it is staggeringly costly. And here's Custer, who is a throwback to an earlier era. 
By fighting primarily as a cavalry officer against other cavalrymen, it's a little segment of the Civil War in which firepower doesn't overrule uh, personal valor and skill. And so Custer comes out of the Civil War appealing to something that Americans feel like they're losing, the romantic dashing hero who were slaughtered by the tens of thousands in the Civil War. Custer survives, successful and victorious. So he's cultivated this image. Women love him, and he loves the fact that women love him. And not only that, he keeps reminding Libby that women love him. And he's writing letters to her talking about how, you know, he sat next to a baroness who was um, wore a uh, dress that was so low-cut that he, it led him to conclude that she was built quite the way other women are. And, uh, um, you know, he was just constantly throwing into Libby's face the fact that other women are, are attracted to him. Why? Elevating his value in Libby's eyes. You know, that insecurity is kind of this underside of it. Libby, by the way, did it to him sometimes also, um, talking about how men were interested in her. It was a part of this strange tension in the relationship. What was she doing at the time? She was off taking care of her dying father. So it was, a, to say the least, it was a little bit callous. And yet, they also had a passionate, intimate relationship. And so Custer's ability to be incredibly emotionally sensitive and intimate with his wife, they, you know, to have real passion and romance, and yet to turn around and be self-absorbed, self-indulgent, and to you know, infuriate her, uh, is a part of this explosiveness, this self-destructiveness, the volatility that marks his entire life. Um, so, you know, he, he's going through this period in the year or two after the Civil War in which he's, he's building a crisis in his marriage. And he, they go out to the West. He has to stay in the Army. He doesn't have the money to leave the Army like he'd wanted. So he takes a position in the 7th Cavalry, goes out to the West of Fort Riley, and they bring along a young woman to keep um, Libby company. And her name was Anna Dara. And Libby changes her name in her memoir that she wrote about this period and talks about how this young woman uh, was a re- just a totally relentless flirt, how um, you know, she was constantly interested in other men. And I detect in that um, a certain discomfort as she looked back with the proximity of her attention-loving husband and a young friend who had written to her about how jealous she was that Libby was the one who married Custer. And later there's a letter that surfaces that, um, unfortunately, is now in private hands, but good historians, more than one, have seen it, who I trust, (coughs) excuse me, in which a young woman named Anna writes to Custer at some point later saying, oh, I just heard a love song being played and I immediately thought of you, how I wish you were here. So there's hints that, in fact, something was going on between the two of them as they go out into the Great Plains in this remote post, which is now beyond the frontier at this point in Kansas. And, you know, Libby, what's going on? We don't know. You know, is it just a flirtation? Is there something else going on? Is it just that Libby might suspect? But as Custer then gets deployed out on what's called the Hancock Expedition, this is sort of gnawing at him. And we can tell he's feeling it. You know, normally... Custer wrote to uh, um, his letters to Libby were, you know, you know, constantly kind of asking for her attention. This juvenile kind of look at me attitude where he would say, you know, I've made some we were hunting antelope and I just made some wonderful shots. Everybody talked about how wonderful my shots were. I just I'm shooting so well and everybody says how great it is. It's this constant attempt to, you know, he's taking other people's hands and patting his own back with them. 
But when he's on this expedition that sets out in 1867, he's, he's not himself. He's writing letters that say things like, um, they're, they're introspective in a way that Custer rarely is. Contemplating these vast and apparently boundless prairies seems to give me new life, Custer writes. But, you know, he's introspective in a way that's not natural for him. He says, where I once was eager to acquire worldly honors and distinctions, my desire now is to make myself a man worthy of the blessings heaped upon me. Well, the implication is is that he's not worthy. He talks about how he's reading um, a, a book called On Melancholy. And, you know, there's something that's going on in him that's out of the ordinary for this man who's constantly trying to tell a story about himself, trying to create this image, I think, for himself as much as others. Then there's another element to the story, too, which is the fact that this is the period of Reconstruction. And this is a part of the professional strain that's being placed on Custer. Custer was someone who helped to destroy slavery as effectively as any Union general. And yet he was from a deeply conservative uh, the Democratic Party is more aligned with those, even in the North, who thought slavery was just fine. Um, he was a Unionist, but he had been pro-slavery, and he was very um, much opposed to the idea of civil rights. And in 1866, he actually goes on campaign with President Andrew Johnson, who's out trying to oppose the 14th Amendment, which is the basis of civil liberties and civil rights in this country. He's out opposing the passage of the, uh, um, the Civil Rights Act and its successors. The very idea of racial equality, at least before the, in, before the law and in politics, is beginning to emerge as Americans grapple with what is this country we have created in the Civil War? What does it mean that slavery has been abolished? What does race mean when we think of citizenship and who is an American? Custer, having helped to create that America in the Civil War, is opposed to it. And he campaigns publicly as a serving regular army officer. He goes on campaign, literally standing next to the president as they make campaign stops. He helps to organize a political convention of soldiers and sailors to oppose the Republicans who in this era are pushing forward the idea of civil rights. He uh, serves as a delegate to Johnson's political convention. He's immersing himself in politics. I think the only reason he didn't run for Congress is that Libby stopped him. She said, no, you do not belong in politics. And why? Because during the Civil War, she had been his lobbyist on Capitol Hill, working with congressmen because he had to be confirmed as a general. He had to have political support in this very political army of the Civil War, the U.S. Volunteers. She knew congressmen. She knew senators. She had lobbied with these guys. She said at one point about one influential congressman, everyone says he's, he's you know, lecherous and licentious and a drunk. Well, I don't care. He's a very nice man. So she didn't dispute the accusations. She's basically saying, I can work with this guy. You know, I mean, Libby is a, a tough, smart woman. And she says, politics is for professionals. You will not run for Congress. So he doesn't. And what happens? Johnson's party is defeated. And the people who used to love Custer they begin to see him as a controversial figure. So Custer's later controversial over the Indian Wars, but he's first controversial over Reconstruction, over race, over civil rights. That's actually where Americans begin to divide over him. And again, he's being challenged. He's brittle. He's defensive. He put himself in that position. He created this disaster for himself, being a political partisan. And he just he gets really upset, and he retreats, and he goes back into the army, and yet, there's a payoff for this. He had been assigned to be the lieutenant colonel by President Grant, or General Grant 
of the, the new black, one of the new black regular army regiments, the Buffalo Soldiers, as they become known. Um, he was supposed to be the lieutenant colonel of the 9th Cavalry, which goes on to have an extremely distinguished record in the West. He writes to President Johnson over Grant's head and says, I only want to serve with white troops. And so um, we don't know the exact mechanism, but after this political campaigning, Custer gets transferred from the 9th Cavalry to the 7th Cavalry. So there is seems to be some sort of a payoff for this political loyalty. So um, Custer goes out he's, uh, with the 7th Cavalry, and his mind is elsewhere. You know, he's under stress. He's now a controversial figure. Politics and race uh, bears into it. As he goes off on this um, campaign, Libby is left back at Fort Riley with a young woman who had gone to work for Custer even before he got married, a woman who had escaped from slavery, who'd gone to work for Custer. Her name was Eliza Brown, who used this position in a general's household to build authority for herself. She traded information. She dispensed food to other escaped slaves, building her own patronage network. And she was also passionate about um, rights and freedom for African Americans. And she tries to lobby Custer and his wife, Libby, um, trying to teach them about the impact of slavery. And we see some of that. Custer is wavering for a while before he goes on campaign with Johnson. So Libby is, is left with Eliza Brown um, in Fort Riley. And what happens is the white troops move out, a black regiment moves in. Now Libby is under stress too. There's a crisis going on in her marriage and she freaks out. She's basically afraid that all these black troops will rape her. And interestingly, even though living in the same house with her is uh, Tom Custer, who won not one but two medals of honor in the Civil War, um, she sees the black woman in the house as being her protector because she sees everything in racial terms. And it's, that's where we begin to see Libby, who's such an admirable character in so many ways. When it comes to race, we start to see the ugly side. And this is America at that time, and we can't turn away from it. And Eliza Brown, we, we know this from Libby's own memoirs. She's saying, what are you talking about? You know, you, you've, you know, you've been helpful to the troops. You know, they, they've, um, some of them have eaten in your kitchen because, again, she's dispensing patronage. She's dispensing food. And, um, and she's, no one's going to hurt you. But, you know, you know, we see this. And part of this also is a tension between the two women because Eliza Brown is keeping Libby from asserting any authority in the household where Libby is supposed to be in charge. And there's a subtle power struggle between these two women that also colors it. The relationships between women, as well as women themselves, are at the center of this book, and one of the reasons why I chose Custer. So Custer goes out. He goes on this expedition. The whole point of the expedition was, as Sherman ordered uh, Custer's commander, Hancock, to go among the Cheyennes, the Arapahoes, the Kiowas, and notify them that if they want war, they can have it now. But if they decline the offer, to impress upon them that they must stop their insolence and threats. So in other words, I put it, in other words, the point of the expedition was to crush their pride. It's a deliberate provocation. And it's a deliberate provocation at the time when another element of the story is taking place, which is the impact of the expansion of the United States upon the peoples of the Great Plains. Now, the kind of intuitive sense we have is that it was settlement is that you know, it was land-grabbing started these conflicts. In fact, it's subtler than that. It was migration through these lands that sparked the conflicts. Because nomadism on the Great Plains 
depended upon these very slender threads of natural resources. The bison and the horse herds, which had the same requirements for nutrition and water. They're in competition with each other. This is a part of the conundrum of um, adopting the horse and taking to nomadism, is the, the horse and the bison are in competition with each other. And to get through the winters, they've got to shelter on resource-rich spots in the river valleys. And the river valleys on the high plains are only 7% of the land area, and they're absolutely essential for both the buffalo and horse herds to survive. And so what happens is, as the migrants are moving through, you know, to California, to Oregon, when the gold rush starts in Colorado, to uh, Denver and to Colorado, where do they go? These wagon trains move along the river valleys, where they are cutting down timber, which is also a matter of destroying grazing. They're um, polluting the water. They're killing off um, game. And in the negotiations, you know, the, the... uh, Indian leaders are saying this explicitly to the army. Um, Satanta, who's a, a Kiowa leader, he says, all tribes are my brothers. Now, there was a lot of intertribal warfare. He means the High Plains tribes are allied and tended to fight the, the nations of the West and the East. All tribes are my brothers. This country here is old, and it all belongs to them. But you are cutting off the timber, and now the country is of no account at all. And so saying they're cutting down the timber, it sounds like such a minor thing to the Americans who show up from the east. But in fact, it's a part of the degradation of these essential resource centers. So what happens to protect them? The army comes along and builds forts. And where do they build forts? In these resource-rich spots. And then what happens? More migrants come. They shelter near the forts. They, They cut down more timber. They destroy more grazing. They're killing off more game. And this is having widespread repercussions. You know, the the buffalo are under now environmental pressure, even apart from hunting. Um, The horse herds are having, they're having trouble maintaining them. And they're having trouble maintaining their people. And so there's an environmental crisis. And so this leads to warfare, which is a part of all interstate systems. It's one of the ways human beings resolve their conflicts. And it's certainly one of the ways the High Plains nations resolve their conflicts. And the problem is, is that the High Plains people knew the United States was very powerful. During the Civil War, there was a delegation of High Plains leaders who went to Washington at the height of the Civil War. So these are not ignoramuses who are living, you know, beyond the edge of the world. They know how powerful the U.S. is. So Satanta says, he goes, um, after complaining about water consumption and loss of game, he says he doesn't know how to respond. He says, other tribes are very foolish. They make war and are unfortunate. And they call upon the Kiowas to aid them. And I don't know what to think about it. And it's just this very honest human moment. I, I don't know what to do. You know, we, if we don't fight back, we're doomed. If we do fight back, we're doomed. And so it's no surprise that, you know, given the choice between the two, they fought back. So what happens is in this, this year, to cut things a little short before I go on forever, you know, Custer goes out, his mind is elsewhere, he's, he's in this morose mood. Um, they, they advance toward this major winter encampment, Southern Cheyennes, Noglala, um, Lakotas, who are, are camped with them, on Pawnee Fork in Kansas. And, you know, Hancock is a Civil War general, he wants to impress them, he wants to intimidate them. But this is right after the Sand Creek Massacre, when some troops from, unfortunately, this state had deliberately attacked and massacred women and children, quite deliberately. And so they don't want the army anywhere near their village. And he insists because he wants to intimidate them. 
And so, you know, they flee. They, they stall them very adroitly. They flee, but they've got to leave behind their village. And it's all of their possessions. It's their entire wealth, everything, trade goods. It's full of manufactured goods. It's part of the reasons they took to the plains in the first place. It was building trade networks. There's, there's you know, these lodges and, and, and other goods they've made themselves that represent years of work. And Hancock decides all they've done is run away. There's no war going on. And he decides to destroy this entire village. And, of course, what happens? It leads to war. So Custer is sent off to chase after the, the um, people who fled. It's his first year in the plains. He's very full of confidence. He's dressed up in this elaborate frontier style, a buckskin outfit. He's got Wild Bill Hickok as one of his um, guides. Henry Stanley, the guy, the reporter who later, later presumed that he'd found Dr. Livingston, he's on this expedition. It's an amazing assemblage of people. And so they're riding along. They've got Indian scouts who are helping them. And he notices off the main trail, there are little trails going off to the side. Well, they keep on the main trail. There's little trails going off. Pretty soon there's no more main trail. Everything's gone. And they, they've lost them. So they decide they're going to march north. Custer sees a buffalo. Oh, it's the first chance he has a, to fight a buffalo or to, to shoot a buffalo. So he, he actually rides off after some antelope, rides away from his column, the middle of this burgeoning war. Um, he leaves behind his bugler, the only guy with him, sees a buffalo. Then he rides miles after this buffalo. He's riding along at full gallop, cocks his revolver. He's, he's about to shoot at the buffalo. The buffalo you know, turns his head sharply in this direction, the horse is frightened. Custer grabs the reins with both hands. The revolver goes off. The bullet goes right into his horse's brain. He shoots his horse dead. Actually, it's his wife's horse, which, again, is resonant for what's going on with him this summer. And so here he is. He's in the middle of nowhere. He's, his, his troops are, you know, he's in hostile country. He knows nothing about. His troops are over the horizon. And, you know, fortunately, he had a good sense of dead reckoning because he, he got up and walked and managed to find the, the path of the troops, and they found him. Um, that same year, he shot his own horse two more times. So um, he's really pretty much at rock bottom. So he goes on. You know, he's, he's having further problems. He get, he's upset. He's, he's insecure. He starts lashing out at his own troops with his wild, over-the-top discipline. He's shaving their heads for minor infractions. Um, I, I think that, in off the top of my head, that in Kansas... He wasn't flogging them, but he had done that earlier. Um, you know, his troops are upset. They're, they're infuriated with him. Um, this is a man who's just very insecure, very feeling like he's unable to lead his troops purely by the force of his moral character. And then, so he's finally, you know, he goes off and does what he's supposed to do, but he doesn't want to fight. He's trying to avoid a war because he wants to go back to Libby, probably to keep her from discovering this thing that he's been doing with her best friend. And so this, uh, you know, he he's found a camp on the Platte River, and this Oglala um, leader comes up, Pawnee Killer, who had earlier tricked Hancock. And he comes up, they signal for a truce, and he goes, you know, we don't want to fight. You know, we just, you know, uh, we'll come in and, and shelter by your fort, my band will, and, and it'll be fine. How about I come into your camp? He goes, oh, yeah, come on in, you know. They look around, they're checking it out. They said, we really could use some supplies. He gives them food and everything. Okay, we'll come back tomorrow, you know, and he takes off. Of course, he never comes back again. Um, is it Custer, you know, is, he's tricked, he's humiliated. He marches off. Um, he's, he's futilely chasing, uh, um, uh, the hostile Indians. Again, his camp gets attacked, um, weeks later. 
uh, and you know he doesn't want to fight. He signals for a truce, and who rides up at Pawnee Killer? He said, "Oh, we don't want to fight. You know, it's all a big mistake." And he said, "You know, how about you know this time you come to our camp, and uh, you know then we'll you know we'll get our stuff together and we'll come back with you." Oh, good, good. So they ride ahead, and pretty soon you know the Lakotas are riding a little faster, and pretty soon they disappear over the horizon. Custer and his men give up. They go back to camp, and they find that Pawnee Killer has circled around, looted their camp while they're gone. This, as I point out, this is a guy with a sense of humor. This is really funny, and Custer is the butt of the joke, somebody who you know, himself liked to play practical jokes. And, um, and then he finds out that Pawnee Killer is deadly, too. He wiped out um, a detachment that was bringing new orders to Custer. So at the end of this, you know, Custer finally you know, comes into a fort, and he just, he's had it. He leaves his troops behind. He takes a, an escort. Two men get separated from the column as he's riding back to Libby. They get ambushed. He finds out about it. He doesn't even do anything about it. He just keeps riding. And it, it's up to a, a captain with a few infantrymen to go save these two men who've been left wounded on the plains. He is at absolute rock bottom in his career. And he gets tried and convicted quite deservedly for abandoning his men. Um, other things happen that are involved in that court martial as well, including his shooting of deserters. So this crisis in his life, it's not just, oh, he loved his wife. It's not just, oh, maybe he was cheating on her. Oh, he didn't know how to deal with you know, warfare on the Great Plains. This is something that brings together all these different threads of America at this time. You know, it's, we see the threads of Reconstruction and the struggle over the new place of African Americans in American society. We see the struggle of a, a young man who'd been promoted without any apprenticeship, who now has to, you know, he's got to be a manager as much as a leader in the post-war army. He's got to have tact. He's got to lead men who are going to be with him year after year with very little fighting for the most part. He's not up to that task. He's somebody who has to deal with, you know, the industrialized U.S., confronting a people with a, a traditional society and lifestyle and how to manage that, even simply how to fight them, the right and wrong of it aside. And he's not up to that task either. It's a real crisis in his life. Interestingly, the way he gets out of it is by the one thing that we all think of him as being so bad at, and that's fighting. And later he carries out um, an attack. He's called back early from his suspension. Court marshals didn't necessarily... The courts martial didn't necessarily destroy a career in the 19th century like it would today. Um, he comes back. Sheridan wants him back. The war has broken out again. He leads, I think, and quite understandably, a controversial attack on a southern Cheyenne village. Um, he uh, carries out um, – I don't think he carries out quite the atrocity that many people think he does, but I think he carries out another one that people don't realize – uh, he leads an attack that he knows will lead to the deaths of women and children, though he doesn't deliberately kill women and children. He tries to stop it. But he does make sure that all fighting-age men who fall into his hands are killed. He's ordered to do that, and he does it. And in any other setting, the army would have considered it an atrocity. So, you know, Custer in the, in the West, you know, that's where we think of him as being controversial. That's where people hate him for uh, his actions. And, and certainly I find that he bears some moral culpability, especially because later in that same campaign, he, he surprised a Cheyenne village and he didn't attack. And he showed that he could accomplish his military mission, which itself is debatable, without launching an attack. So ironically, it's Custer's own actions that show that these surprise attacks on a population center were not necessary to accomplish the military goal. 
So, you know, it's not that he was this genocidal maniac, but he certainly bears some personal culpability. The greater culpability, though, of course, lies upon the actions of the U.S., the strategies and orders drawn up by his commander and uh, the policies of, of policymakers and even the mass movements of peoples that bring about this great conflict. Um, you know, in thinking about Custer as a, a controversial figure, if we put all the weight on him, it really gives everybody else a break, doesn't it? And I think that's an important thing to remember, that um, we, uh, you know, we shouldn't excuse the people who are involved in these terrible, bloody incidents. Um, but we have to understand where the greatest moral culpability lies. And so I think we can do that without exonerating everybody else. And I think that's what I've tried to do with my portrait of Custer. So by carrying out this attack, though, he redeems himself with his military superiors, which means he goes on to dig greater and deeper holes for himself, unable to adapt to this new America and he's constantly in the public eye. He's not just famous for the way he died. He was famous in his lifetime and controversial as a writer, as a kind of public intellectual, as a man on Wall Street trying to launch a uh, company, a silver mining company, for a silver mine he'd invested in in Colorado. Um, someone who engaged in stock trading on his own, who got involved in politics yet again and was very nearly pulled from one more campaign which gave him a chance to save himself from his own disasters, which led him, of course, to the little bighorn. And the great irony of his life is that um, the last act of mercy or of good luck that he benefited from was the one that ended up leading to his death when Grant reluctantly, now President Grant, reluctantly allowed Custer to go out and take part in the little bighorn campaign. And I'll stop talking now. I'll be happy to take questions. Thank you. Anybody have any questions? Yes, sir. Um, how difficult was it to get to primary resources? I, I thought that all the letters and everything was burned by her by the wife. No, that's actually not true, but it's a mixed bag. Um, there's a lot of information that um, was kind of kept out of the archives, but she left an enormous amount of material in the archives. And... Um, so, you know, there's some material that was kept by the Custer family. At the Little Bighorn, Custer and his two of his brothers were killed, as well as a nephew and uh, um, a brother-in-law. And Custer had um, – uh, so, so he had one brother who survived because he wasn't in the army. And so that brother's descendants held on to a lot of papers. But – um, uh, private collectors have gotten on their hands on the material since. So I, you know, there are historians who I, I really trust, really good historians, and more than one, which is important, who've seen some of this material. So because of that, I, I trust its authenticity, and I, I quote it, quoting other people's books. But there is some very important, especially the more controversial personal material, because Libby wanted to paint their marriage as being one of just unalloyed happiness, whereas it was very human, very volatile. Um, but there's an enormous amount of material that Libby deposited in libraries, um, that uh, her literary executor deposited, and of course the National Archives is full of material, and there's other collections like at Yale and elsewhere where there's a lot of, lot of letters. And that's actually the wonderful thing about Custer as a character, is that you know, human beings are contradictory. And in trying to write about history, I am also interested in writing a human story. And, you know, all of my subjects 
uh, have been controversial people, you know, in some cases downright evil people, as I think Jesse James was. Um, but, you know, they're human beings, and I'm trying to get at that. And, it, you know, who was this person who did this and that? In Custer's case, he did actually very good things as well as, you know, highly controversial things. He was a volatile, contradictory person, and that comes out of his letters. I mean, he he's, was astonishingly volatile, capable of lurching in radically different directions um, from one moment to the next. And as I said, you know, it, um, I'm not trying to rehabilitate him by bringing out that human side of him and talking about what kind of a person could lead this dramatic, controversial life. Ah, uh, yes, sir. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's it's hard to, you know, one what I tried to do when I, I wrote about the Little Bighorn at the end, because the world didn't need, you know, all the hundreds of books about Custer, most of them are about the Little Bighorn to a large extent, if not entirely. The world didn't need another one of those. So I deal with it, It's you know, it gets more space than any other battle in his battlefield life. But I, what I try to do is present it a little bit at a remove. So um, I tell the story, this is giving it away a little bit. I tell the story from through the Reno Court of Inquiry. So I literally have Custer riding um, over the plains um, to fight. As I said, the one thing he'd actually always done well and was always in self-possessed at um, was fighting. And he goes off, and then I pick up in the epilogue two years later, essentially when the Reno Court of Inquiry meets, when the Army has a formal investigation to find out if his second-in-command was responsible for the disaster that befell the 7th Cavalry. And so I tell the story through the testimony of that court, which gives you first-hand accounts, but it does not give you an omniscient overview. So, you know, there's a lot of details that I leave out. What was Custer's nature? And part of the, the question is, of course, you know, not wanting to get bogged down in details that would tr- take over the book, as it so often does in Custer's story, but also because we have an observer bias, right? We know how the story ends. So we're going to see, you know, all kinds of meaning in little things that happened before then. You know, Custer was introspective before the battle. Well, you know, it may mean that he was sleepy or he was unusually thoughtful that day, or it may be because he had just created this crisis for himself by testifying in Congress against the Grand Administration, nearly being removed from uh, field command of the 7th Cavalry and being held back from this great expedition against the Sioux. You know, I mean, or, you know, maybe it's just like somebody thought that and they're wrong. I mean, you know, because we know how that day ends, everything that happens that day seems like it's fraught with meaning, but maybe it isn't. You know, maybe because, you know, I take the viewpoint that as Robert Etley, one of the greatest historians of the Indian Wars takes, that the Little Bighorn is less about Custer than it is about the uh, Cheyennes and the Lakotas. And the, the, uh, the Indians won. I mean, you know, it was a, an incredible achievement to defeat a unified, well, it wasn't unified on the field, but an entire U.S. Cavalry Regiment went out to fight them in mass, which rarely happened, um, led by the most successful tactical uh, commander in the U.S. Army, I think by far, and they beat him. 
And they beat him not just because of greater numbers, which played a role, but, you know, individual skill, inspirational leadership, high, great deal of motivation, um, and a great deal of confidence from having beaten back Crook's column earlier. You know, I, I mean, you know, it's less that Custer lost than they won. And when people get mad at Custer for all of the sins of the nation, um, then they want to run him down as a person, and he has a lot of faults. <laughs> you know, he's a, he's a very flawed person. But, you know, they'll say he was an idiot, he was an arrogant commander. Well, you know, he had a lot of faults, but when he was in the field, he was very good. And if you run him down too far, you're diminishing the magnitude of that victory, which I think was an astonishing victory. Just not astonishing like, I can't believe it happened, but, you know, a tremendous victory for which I think they deserve credit rather than Custer deserves fault, even though he obviously made mistakes. Um, Any other questions? Yes? Biographies, not novels. Not, yeah. Biographies, that's what I meant. And so I'm curious, um, with your research methods and how, what's the timeline as far as like our research? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, research, how long the research process takes, it, it depends a little bit on the scale of the life. So, for example, with Custer and with Jesse James, these are people who died in their 30s. So they had crowded, busy lives. Jesse James became essentially uh, a, a Confederate guerrilla and to some extent a terrorist at the age of 16. Um, Custer graduated from West Point and immediately went to the first battle of the Civil War. No, not immediately. He was court-martialed and convicted first. Then he went to the first battle of the Civil War. And so, you know, these are crowded, busy lives, but they're relatively compressed and so I, I finished my research first. So that's about three-quarters of the time is spent researching. Um, with Vanderbilt, I, I did – it was more that I researched each of the three parts of the book because he also had an incredibly crowded life, but it was a very long one. You know, he went to biz, into business in 1810 when he was 16 years old, and he died in 1877 after doing business personally with John D. Rockefeller – you know, I mean, this is just an astonishingly huge life, and I couldn't just research and then write. I had to break it down to chunks. So um, the interesting thing is when researching, I'm thinking about the narrative as I research. So when I, I look at a letter, I'm thinking about it's, – it's thinking about the narrative, how it might fit in. I'm thinking about characters. I'm thinking about meaning that I may see in there. So, for example, um, you know, there, there are a number of letters of, of the – you know, but a little less than half the book, the first part, is the Civil War. And that isn't just – it's called Rise, that first part. And you, know, you see the seeds of Custer's self-destructive behavior in that part of the book. But it, it's also about things that bear fruit later in the sense of how Custer was different from other intellectuals who came out of the Civil War, very disillusioned. And so to set the stage for that, I talk about the, the, the devastation of the war and how it affected people. To highlight how unusual it was that Custer came out with this romantic idea of war, very much in love with war, even though he's intelligent enough to know how devastating it is. So, for example, there was a young private um, in – I don't know how young he was. He was married. He was a French immigrant who lived in Michigan. And you know he fought in Custer's Michigan Regiment, uh, the first or brigade, the first 
unit of cavalry that Custer commanded as a general. He was very proud of their successes. He was very proud of Custer as a commander. And yet he was a really sensitive guy. And he talks about after the Battle of Gettysburg, how it just broke his heart to see thousands of Confederate prisoners literally leaving a a trail of blood, you know, with, with severed limbs and shattered arms dragging themselves along. He talks about how they were ordered to take food wherever they could and livestock from farms in the South and how he and a friend came to this one farmhouse and there were just a few women left. All the men were gone and all they had left was some cornmeal and flour and they just couldn't bear to take it. They, they couldn't take their last food. And some other soldiers came and they actually stopped them. And then finally um, a, an officer shows up and orders them they have to take it. This is economic warfare. If they don't take it, the Confederate Army will. And he said, you know, I just, I hate being ordered to do things that I detest. He was a sensitive man, even though he's a fully committed soldier. And so through these, these stories that are a part of, organic part of Custer's experience, you know, I read those letters, and it's not just skip over to the part where he mentions Custer. Thinking about the time, you know, like reading that letter kind of contributed to my thinking you know, what's going on? How are people being affected by the war? And how is that different from the way Custer is affected? So it's very easy if you just focus on Custer's letters and his experiences to get caught up in that romanticism, the hero. He was heroic, and there's no way around it. You know, he hurled himself into combat. He fought very well. He had actual personal skill. He was a skillful tactician. He wasn't just a reckless guy who charged ahead. And so it's very easy to get caught up in that, And yet, seeing the whole picture, seeing how people very close to him were much more troubled than he was by this experience, and trying to understand, okay, why wasn't he so troubled? Why, you know, he gets promoted to general, he has control of his fate. He's never, like, ordered around and sent into impossible situations where he sees people get killed left and right with no rhyme or reason. The sort of thing that makes Ambrose Beer so dark. That's not Custer. And so I come back to that again later when I'm writing about Custer as a memoirist and as a uh, um, public intellectual. He starts writing for a national audience. You know, Americans love that. Even though you see these new, much darker intellectuals are emerging out of the Civil War, Oliver Wendell Holmes, um, Mark Twain, very ironic, kind of darker view. Custer, he had his romanticism reinforced by the war. And you see the way he writes about some of the, the... darkest episodes in the Indian Wars, and he writes about it with his very romantic air, though we know from the diaries and accounts from other people just, you know, how awful some of these moments were. And so, you know, understanding that, again, that's understanding a person without an attempt to, you know, push you pro or con. It's situating this person in the times and understanding the human experience of this revolutionary moment in American history. Okay, I'd be happy to sign books. Thank you. That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Foden. We have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.